you got a Bible this morning, turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're continuing in our series on the book of Revelation. We're actually, we're actually taking several weeks uh, to introduce the book because a book like this needs a lot of introduction. Uh, this, this book is a, is a tremendous book in the Bible. Uh, it, it, it's a book that many times is viewed uh, with a certain stigma attached or even skepticism or, or fear uh, by both lost people and saved people. Uh, but it's a worthy study that we're under, undertaking over the next several months and even year uh, to, to work through this book. It's considerable study, and as such, we have to spend the time on the front end to establish the purpose of the book and the meaning of the book and, and, and the fact that it reveals Jesus Christ as he is in all of his glory, like no other book of the Bible. We have the earthly ministry of Christ recorded in the Gospels and, and where Christ was wrapped in a suit of flesh and, and walked on this earth, and of course, was the Word of God incarnate in flesh, but the book of Revelation for us reveals Christ literally in all of his glory and all of his power and all of his dominion. And so it's important for us to take a few weeks to set the groundwork of, of this study because we need to understand the, the purpose and the point of the book being in our Bible. And so uh, this morning is just a continuation really of the introduction of this book. We've, we've seen that God has revealed this book uh, to, to, to Jesus Christ, then to an angel, then to John, and John was to write these things to seven churches in Asia Minor, and because God promised to preserve his word, you and I actually get to read it today, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, God promised that he would, he would preserve his word for us, and, and we are the benefactors of that. We get to know exactly what God uh, wanted, not only uh, for those churches in the first century, but for our church in the 21st century. There's some great application that we're going to learn. And so this morning, we're going to read verses 9 to 11, and we need to get going uh, because I have like eight pages of notes, and that's always a danger when I walk into the pulpit with eight pages of notes. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, let's read the text. Uh, we'll pray and then we'll get right into it uh, this morning. Let me also remind you that if you are using that church app, you do have sermon notes digitally on the app, and you can follow along uh, as well, or use your paper notes, whatever you'd like. Okay, Re Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. The Bible says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And so let's pray this morning as we begin our study. Father, we love you. Thank you again for, for our team uh, being home. Uh, God, I'm thankful for what you've done in their heart and life. I'm thankful for the, in, the impact that they've had in the lives of other people, missionary families, missionary children. God, thank you for the investment of the Word of God and the lives of, of your workers so that they could be refreshed, recharged, and be about your business now. And I pray that, that the, the lessons learned stay with them, and I pray the lessons learned from, from our team God, stay with them, and that, that, that you've begun a fire in their heart uh, to love you and to serve you more than, that, that you, than they ever have before. And I pray that they, they never extinguish that in their life and just use them in a mighty way. God, as we study your word today, we need your Holy Spirit to teach us. We, we can't understand your word without the Holy Spirit's working. We're not smart enough. We don't have spiritual discernment, but he does. He's the teacher. And so God, bless us as we compare scripture with scripture. We trust that you're going to speak to us today, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
So at this point in Revelation, John again introduces himself uh, as the author, as the, as the human instrument through which God is giving this book of Revelation. And I, and I want you to get this first blank down in your notes because John is going to begin talking about the relationships that he has with these seven churches. As a matter of fact, as we, as we talk about this revelation that John is receiving from the Lord, and as he's writing to these seven churches, he just goes on record to, to mention the relationships that he has with these other believers in Christ. Remember, historically, John is writing to the seven churches that are mentioned in verse 11. And when he identifies himself, he identifies himself to those seven churches with two specific relationships to those churches and to those believers in those churches. And before we get to what those two relationships are, let me just remind you that John at this point in his life is probably 85 to 90 years old, nearing the end of his life. And, and, and you got to understand biblically that John was a pretty special guy in the scripture. I mean, he's a pretty special guy. I mean, listen, you have the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples that came, became the 12 apostles. And those 12 men were special. Because of those 12 men, nobody else got to follow Christ personally like those 12 did. I mean, they were called individually by name by Jesus Christ to follow him, to spend three and a half years with him during his earthly ministry, to be discipled by him. We just mentioned, somebody just mentioned the ministry of discipleship. These guys got discipled by Christ himself. They did ministry with him. They heard him teach personally. They were with him for, for, for just fellowship and with meals and just time together. Those 12 men were special. But among those 12 men, there were three that seemed to be the inner circle. In other words, there's more ins instances of experiences that they had with Christ that aren't mentioned by the other the other 12, or, or, or the total of the 12, there were three that kind of seemed to be on the inner circle of that, and that would have been Peter, James, and John. And if you doubt that there was any maybe difference between them, I would say that those three actually had the privilege in their ministry to actually write Scripture. And, and so if you study the 12 disciples and the 12 apostles, man, three of those guys are responsible for portions of Scripture in the Bible. Those three also saw Christ glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and that is a, a tremendous experience that, that not all 12 got to see, but those three got to see. Again, I'm not saying better or worse. I'm just saying that the, the Scripture records for us that it was those three on that mountain of Transfiguration, and John was there. John was responsible for Scripture. John was on the Mount of Transfiguration. As a matter of fact, John was the disciple that at the Last Supper, when Jesus Christ was teaching his disciples, and he says in Mark chapter 14, as they ate, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say to you, one of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful. These disciples began to be sorrowful and said, by him, said unto him one by one, Is it I? Is it I? But listen, John was the one guy sitting there that didn't ask, Is it I? Because in John chapter 13 and verse 25, he was lying on Jesus' breast at that dinner and he said, Lord, who is it? In other words, John didn't know who it was, but John knew who it wasn't. It wasn't John that was going to betray Christ. He knew that. He didn't say, is it I? He said, Lord, who is it? Because 
because me and you are tight, and, and I know one thing, it's not me. I don't know who it is, but I know who it ain't. It ain't me. John had a special relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, five times in the book of John, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, wrote that he was the disciple who Jesus loved. And if you dare think for a second that John just kind of introduced that into that epistle himself in his human will, you need to understand that God gave us scripture through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit wants you to know that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And five times in that, in that book, John 13, John 19, 20, 21, and, and, and again in 21, verse 20, John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jay, do you mean to tell me Jesus didn't love all of his disciples? Of course he loved them. And he loved you. But listen, there's something special about John. It was John who was the disciple of all the disciples that at the cross was the one disciple still standing with Jesus Christ. In other words, at the crucifixion, when Christ died for our sins, all the other disciples had fled. But there was one standing there, and it was the Apostle John. It was John that when Jesus Christ was on the cross of Calvary, looked down and saw John, and looked down and saw his mother. And Christ, while he is dying for our sin, gave responsibility to care for Mary, his mother. He gave that responsibility to John. As a matter of fact, in John 19, verses 26 and 27, the Bible says, When therefore Jesus saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his, his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her unto his own home. Do you understand that of all the disciples that Christ could have given the responsibility to take care of his mother because now he is going to die for our sin. The last person that's standing at the cross and the last person that God would give such a tremendous honor and responsibility to was John. You see, it was John who was the last person that Jesus Christ would lay his eyes upon before he gave up the ghost and died. It was John who loved Christ when others wavered. It was John who had confidence when others questioned and forsook him. It was John who followed faithfully to the end, even at the foot of the cross. And, and let me just say this. At the, at the foot of the cross, there's usually not a crowd, even though there should be. I mean, there would have been every disciple there. And the truth is, the same is true today. At the foot of the cross, there's not too many disciples of Jesus, even today. I didn't say there aren't, aren't saved people or believers in Christ or followers of Christ. I'm just saying not too many people make it to the foot of the cross in their walk with Christ. But John did. And, and John is an example for us. He's a special guy. Listen, and I want you to understand that it's important we understand who John is because, listen, if there were any ecclesiastical authority or a hierarchy amongst the apostles of Jesus Christ, can I just tell you the number one guy would have been John. And I know, 
I know certain religious groups that like to argue that Peter has an important part in all this. Let me just tell you that Peter is the guy that denied Christ three times before the crucifixion. Let me also tell you that after the, the, the resurrection and after the ascension in Galatians chapter 2, Peter's the guy that can't figure out if Gentiles really can get saved and if he should fellowship with them. As a matter of fact, in, in Galatians chapter 2, Peter is blamed by the apostle Paul and withstood to the face. In other words, publicly rebuked by the apostle Paul for his behavior because because he was comfortable eating with Gentiles until his other Jewish buddies showed up. And then he distanced himself from the Gentiles because, because he was walking, according to the Apostle Paul, not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. Kind of takes the wind out of the sails of papal infallibility because Peter was publicly rebuked by the Apostle Paul because he wasn't walking according to the gospel. I'm just saying that John was the guy. If anybody was going to have any kind of supreme hierarchy concerning the apostles, it wouldn't have been John. Let me tell you who wasn't getting rebuked in Galatians chapter 2. John. John wasn't being rebuked. And, and so this dude, man, was the, was the guy. He's the guy. I mean, of all the apostles, he's the guy. And when he introduces himself to these seven churches... He doesn't introduce himself as John the Beloved. He doesn't introduce himself as John the Son of Mary. He doesn't introduce himself as John the Apostle. He doesn't introduce himself as John the Disciple whom Jesus loved. He introduces himself as, I'm your brother. And what that tells me is, no matter how mature you may be in the Lord, no matter how much responsibility you may have, be, have in the Lord, no matter how much you've done in your walk with the Lord, you're just other Christians' brother. That's all we are. We're just brothers in Christ. And so get this down in your notes. When John introduced himself to the seven churches as your brother, what John's helping us understand this morning is that we were created with a need in the body of Christ for family. We were created with a need for family in the body of Christ. John is writing to these seven churches, and he says, hey, listen, it's me, John. And I, everybody probably was like, oh, it's John. And John was just like, hey, man, I'm just your brother. I'm just your brother. That's all I am. I'm just your brother. Proverbs 17 and verse 17 says, a friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And as you study the New Testament, you need to understand that the, the, the New Testament word for the relationship between members of the body of Christ is the word brethren. We are brethren because we're all part of the family of God. We're all part of the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest illustrations of this is found in Acts chapter 9. Do you guys remember the guy named Saul who, who later became Paul? You read the Bible, thank God. Okay, so, so Acts chapter 9, I'm just, man, I don't I just want to make sure, at least you've heard the rumor. Okay, so Acts chapter 9, man, listen, Christ reveals himself to Saul on the Damascus road, and, and he receives some instruction to go meet a man named Ananias. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 17, listen, Saul had a reputation for killing Christians, for imprisoning Christians, for allowing them to be locked up because of the faith in Jesus Christ. He was a persecutor of the church. And then he meets Jesus. 
And in Acts chapter 9, verse 17, it says, Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, he said to him, Brother Saul. I mean, are you awake this morning? This dude that has been on the receiving end, possibly, of Paul's persecution, Saul's persecution, this guy that actually was hesitant to even meet this man named Saul because he knew that he had been responsible for the death of Christians. Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7, and the people that were stoning Stephen laid their, their clothes and their jackets and their garb at the feet of Saul while they're killing him. This guy had a reputation. And when Ananias meets him, he greets him, and he calls him Brother Saul. You know why he called him that? Because Ananias realized Saul was now part of the family of God. You see, even the most vile and murderous sinner that now has met Jesus Christ is a brother in the family of God. He's a brother in the family of God. And so here's the key that you need to get down. What makes the body of Christ family is that we all share the same father. We all share the same father because the Bible teaches us that there are only two spiritual families in existence. And you're either in the devil's family or you're in God's family. We're not all sons of God until a very particular point in time where you come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was addressing the Pharisees in John chapter 8 and verse 44, he says, Ye are of your father, the devil. And these were religious men that knew the scriptures and they were zealous. And yet, yet Christ says, listen, your spiritual father is the devil. You you absolutely are not a part of my family. You're part of the devil's family, and you need to be born again. He says, listen, you, there's no truth in the, in the devil. When he speaks a lie, he speaks it of his own, for he's a liar and the father of it. And you guys are part of that family, you bunch of liars, because there's only two spiritual families. You enter into that family through your physical birth. And so the fact that you're living and breathing God's free air today means that, number one, you've been born once. And that first birth puts you, because of sin, it puts you in the devil's spiritual family. But the Bible goes on to tell us that there's a second spiritual family, and that's God's family. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And, and so the point is that, that we're all born in sin. We're, we're born into the devil's family. You say, I don't like that. Well, you don't have to like it. It's the Bible. And, and you're, not, you're not God's children just because you exist. You're, you're God's children because you've been born again. You've been born again. In other words, you've had a second birth. 1 Peter 1 and verse 23 says that we're, we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the point is that when God, when you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, God puts you in a family and God becomes your father. And I know blood family is strong, but spiritual family is stronger. This is your forever family. And I have family, listen, that are my blood relative, that until, until they come to a place of repentance and, and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they'll never be part of my spiritual family. And I don't have the right relationship with them that I should have because the truth is the spiritual family 
is the true family. It's the eternal family. That's, that's where we are. We're going to be in eternity together with each other. And some of you right now are like grumbling. Oh, man, are you serious? Yeah, for sure, man. For sure. Yeah. You can't pick your family, right? You can pick your friends. You just can't pick your family. And that goes for your spiritual family. And so, listen, that, we need to appreciate that because John says to these seven churches and the believers in those seven churches, man, I'm your brother. I'm your brother. And as a brother, he's going to invest in their life spiritually by giving them the word of God. He's going to love them enough to tell, to tell them what God says. So get this key in your, in your notes. Look, what makes our faith family strong is love. That's what makes our faith family strong in Christ. Love for the brethren is what we're called to as Christians. And, and you know, if you ever hear somebody say, well, I love Jesus, I just can't stand the church. Okay, well, you're talking to somebody that's biblically illiterate. Or, or just an idiot. Or maybe both. I, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. You don't understand that you're part of a family. You don't understand that you have the same spiritual father that every other believer in Christ has. You don't understand that for all of eternity you are going to be together with the body of Christ. You don't understand that you're called to love the brethren and forgive the brethren and invest in the brethren and enjoy the fellowship with the brethren. You see, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14 says that we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. And anyone that would say, I love Jesus, but not the church, probably needs to get saved. Because when you love Christ, you love his body. You love the family of God. These are the people that I'm going to spend eternity with. And I'm thankful I get to spend this temporal life with you as well. I'm thankful for that. I don't want to be anywhere else. There's nowhere else I'd rather be on Sunday morning. There's no other group of people I'd rather be with on Sunday morning. You're my family. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so the question is, do you love the brethren? Do you love the brethren? Because John loved the brethren. And listen, John had a pretty exhaustive resume as it relates to Christ. But his resume and his experiences and the fact that, man, he was the guy. Of all the guys, he was the guy. He didn't let that get in the way of his ability and capacity to love the body of Christ. Do you love the brethren? Let me ask you this question. Would you, would you say that you love the brethren enough to lay down your own life for them? Would you be willing to lay down your own preferences for your church family? Your prejudices? How about this one? Would you be willing to lay down your opinions? Would you be willing to lay down your schedule and your time to have fellowship with the church body? Would you lay down your personal wants and your personal goals to be a part of the family of God? You see, if we ever get too busy pursuing our own interests so that we can't appreciate the family of God, we've missed an opportunity. And John tells us that we have been created with a need for family. And that's why John tells those seven churches. He could have said, you know, the apostle whom Jesus, just letting you know, I'm still the, I'm still the favorite. Okay, he didn't do that. He just let them know I'm your brother. The second thing that John lets those seven churches know is that, number two, he's their companion. He's their companion. In other words, you and I were created with a need 
for companionship. In other words, Christianity is not a solo individual sport. As a matter of fact, there's nothing about Christianity that emphasizes the individual, and yet, as Christians, many times that's where we err. We think Christianity is about us. We think our salvation is about us. But let me remind you that you were born into a family. God also says that you were placed into a body. You are placed into the body of Christ. And that body has many different members. And every one of those members need each other. So one person doesn't make up the body of Christ. One person doesn't make up a family of God. Christ always sent his disciples out at a minimum of two by two. Because we need companionship in ministry and in travel and in labor. And listen, some of you need to hear this this morning because you sit in a room of people on Sunday morning, but the truth is you don't have companions in your life. You don't truly have companionship in your life. I didn't say you didn't come to church on Sunday morning and sit through an hour and a half church service. But what I'm saying is that the truth is you don't really have People like John, people that can spiritually walk with you and do life together in Christ. Because the only time you see other people that are part of your church family is Sunday morning. And you're missing on companionship. And and some of you would say, well, I've got my wife. I got my husband. He or she is all I need. And listen, that certainly is companionship. But God put you in a family. God put you in a church. He put you in a flock. He put you in an army, a vineyard, and a building. And all of those things are corporate entities that represent what the church is. And so there's a need for companionship in the body of Christ. And if you're missing that, well, that's a two-way street, man. You need to make yourself available for that. So let's talk about this thing of companionship. Why do we need companionship? What areas of life do we need companionship in? Well, John gives us the answer in the same verse. He said, I'm your companion, number one, in in tribulation. You need companionship in tribulation, difficult times, difficult circumstances. By the way, John, as he's writing this, is experiencing tribulation. I mean, he's exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He's writing to these seven churches And the Spirit of God is going to reveal something to each of those seven churches they need to hear and and something that they need to overcome. But I just want you to understand that while John is in tribulation, he's also church's companion in tribulation because they're going through stuff too. And we need each other. You know, Jesus told told us there'd be days like this, John chapter 16, verse 33. And I want you to pay attention because as we read these verses... Every instance of of this thing of tribulation, difficulty, persecution shows up, there's always a a pronoun that points to the plural. In other words, John 16 and verse 33, Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you that you might have peace in the world. Excuse me, that you might have peace. In the world, ye shall have tribulation. And and the ye is just the King James Bible version of you all, y'all. It's plural. And, and what, what Christ is saying, Christ is not looking at one individual person and saying, hey, you're going to have tribulation. Sorry. No, that's not what he's doing. He's saying, all of you are going to have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I want you to notice the plurality of this issue of tribulation. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. Paul writes and he says, not only so, but we glory in what? 
So Paul wasn't the only guy going through stuff. How many, let's just be honest, can we get real? I know I'm running way out of time and we're probably not going to get done with the sermon, but I need you to get real for a second. How many times when we go through stuff, it's usually us thinking that we're the only person on the planet that's going through stuff? Hello? And the truth is, listen, oh, you know, oh, pitiful me, man, my world's crashing down. And, and, and listen, I understand it's personal, I get it. But every time we see this thing of tribulation show up in the Bible, it's always a plurality. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 4, Paul writes and he says, Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I'm, I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. We're going through some stuff, and your testimony encourages us. 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 4, again, Paul writing, Verily, we, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation. So you're not going to escape difficult times as a Christian. You're not going to escape difficulties, trials, persecutions, but you don't have to do it alone. As a matter of fact, God never intended for you to do it alone. And if you're doing it alone, you're doing it wrong. Because you need companions in tribulation. So let me ask you this. What's the last trial that you went through? And who walked through that trial with you? What's the last trial, tribulation, persecution, affliction that you went through? And, and then the second question is, who walked with you through that trial, tribulation, affliction, persecution? Who walked with you through that? Because you're not called to do that alone. You need companions in tribulation. Now, uh, just a side note, and we don't have time for this point, but let me just make sure you understand, when I'm talking about tribulation, there is tribulations that we experience in life, and there's a thing called the great tribulation, and that's not what John is talking about in Revelation chapter 1. And, and if you do a word search on the great tribulation, it's that time of tribula tribulation on the entire earth that we'll talk about a little bit later. I just want to make sure you understand that John was on the Isle of Patmos not by choice. He didn't decide to take a vacation and, and go to the island for you know, a, a one-week getaway. He's there because he's exiled by the Roman government for the word of God and for the testimony of Christ. And John never lost his focus that he, one, wasn't in that situation by himself, and he also never lost the focus that other people are going through stuff too. And so get this key in your notes. Your tribulation has a trajectory. In other words, God will work out whatever you're going through for your good, and God will work it out for his glory. And you need to appreciate and lean on and rely on the resources that God's given you through the body of Christ because you need companions in tribulation. You need it. Pick up the phone. Let somebody know. You need to have relationships with each other so that you kind of know when people are going through stuff. But if we're not a tight family, we'll never know that. Okay, secondly, we... we, we John says that he's companion in the kingdom. And again, he's writing to these seven churches. And remember, we saw early in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6 that God has he's loved us at the cross. He, he washed us in redemption. He made us, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6, he made us kings and priests. And so not only is John a companion in tribulation, but John is a companion to those seven churches in the kingdom. And again, I want to I just remind you that your salvation, get this key in your notes, your salvation translated you not only into the family of God, 
But your salvation translated you into the kingdom of Christ. When you got saved, God put you into his eternal kingdom. He translated you into his kingdom. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And, and you need to appreciate this as a Christian. You need to understand that you have a new family, a faith family, and you need to understand that you are a part of an eternal kingdom. That'll give you some focus for Monday morning. It'll help you when you go to your job tomorrow and walk in. You'll understand that you're not a part of this earthly kingdom, but you're part of Christ's kingdom that's eternal. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Listen to this. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Do you understand that before you got saved, you were under the power of darkness? Your sin, the devil's family, spiritual wickedness, just rebellion against God. And do you understand that when you received Christ and believed the gospel, God delivered you from the power of that darkness, and he also translated you into the kingdom of his dear son. He moved you from that place to this place. He, he translated you. And by the way, your translation was complete. In other words, God moved you from point A to point B, never to go back to point A. It was a translation. Oh, and by the way, that translation also moved you to a superior state, because I think the kingdom of, or power of darkness is, is inferior to the kingdom of Christ. Does that make sense? It, it's an inferior state, and so God moved you to a superior state, and so, and so, you know, don't tell me that a translation can't be accurate or complete because your salvation proves so. And some of you will understand what I just said next week sometime. A kingdom is no kingdom without authority and order. And so God has moved us into his kingdom. We're going to rule together and reign with Christ if you, if you are a faithful steward now. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 tells us that if we suffer, there's that tribulation, right? We shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And the point is not deny us salvation, but deny us the privilege of reigning with him during his millennial reign. And so listen, we're all kings and priests if you, if you walk with God and serve God. That means we're going to serve together in God's eternal kingdom. So we might as well learn to serve together now. You okay with that? Just like we need companions in tribulation, we need companions in the kingdom. And we're not building the kingdom of heaven, we're, we're, we're a part of the kingdom of God. And we got, we got a king, don't we? So listen, if we got a king, let's learn to be companions together in the kingdom of God. Let's learn to do ministry together. Let's learn to walk together and be about God's kingdom business. And then number three, we need companions in the patience of Jesus Christ. In other words, we need, we need people with us, man, when we're having to exercise patience. Now listen, patience is not an attribute of God in the sense that God has never found a, diff a difficult situation. God has long suffering towards sinners, but God's patience never runs out. In other words, God has never found himself in a situation that's too hard to endure. Does that make sense? But, but, but Christians do. Uh, I think it was Brenna earlier that mentioned having to have patience. Man, I know what God's put in my heart, but waiting on that is sometimes difficult. Well, we, we have to have companions together with us in the patience of Jesus Christ. James tells us, he says in chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, 
knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh what? And nobody like, don't pray for patience, because as soon as you pray for it, your faith is going to be tried. Does that make sense? But, but listen, patience has a perfecting work in our life, that we may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The point is, patience works something out. It makes us more like Christ. It makes us more mature when we have to wait. And can I just tell you, you need friends to be with, with you when you're enduring things that require patience. You need people with you. Because again, you'll feel like, man, I'm the only, only person going through this. I'm the only person that has a desire to go to the mission field, but I just can't seem to get there. I'm the only person that's trying to do this, but man, everything's stacked again. Listen, welcome to the club. Let me, let me say it better. Welcome to the family. You need companions with you because, because we're all trying to do what the Lord has for us and the trying of your faith works patience, and patience is going to perfect you to make you a mature believer in Christ. And we need companionship in that. Okay, so what we've seen is that John had a unique relationship with those seven churches. He didn't exalt himself. He actually humbled himself and just said, hey guys, I'm just your brother, and I'm just your companion. And aren't you thankful for people like that? Because there's, there's guys in my life that I would look to and say, man, they're like the Apostle John. I mean, there's guys that I think are just spiritual giants, personally. You know, they, they're just phenomenal teachers and preachers of God's Word. They're, they've been instrumental in my spiritual growth and development. And I look at those guys and think, man, you're just way up there. And the truth is, when you get to know them, they're just like, man, I'm just your brother. I'm just your companion, man. Let's just go do this thing together. And those are the, those are the kind of people I want to be like, okay? And then let me give you the second point in like three minutes, all right? We saw John's relationship concerning the revelation. Now let me show you John's location regarding the revelation. Because the Bible tells us in that passage that, that John was in the isle that's called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so John's physical address, when, when he's receiving this revelation, when he's, when he's understanding what it is God wants him to communicate, he's literally on an island that's called Patmos. It's, in, it's a Greek island in the Aegean Sea. I meant to load a map. I forgot to do it. We'll, we'll get there next week. But the point is, he's been exiled, and he's there geographically. That's his physical address when this is going down. But verse 10 gives us insight into his spiritual address, because there's something bigger going on here. Verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's very interesting. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, wait a second, John, I thought you were on the Isle of Patmos. Yes, but I was also in the Spirit, capital S, and, and I was on the Lord's day. In other words, John is having not only a, a, a physical location, but he has, is having a spiritual address that he's ascribing himself to at a very specific place and time. And so get this in your notes. The Lord's day is not the Sabbath. And even though the Sabbath is a very important day in the Bible, I'm not minimizing the importance of that at all, the Sabbath was always on the seventh day. It's on Saturday. The Sabbath is not on Sunday. You can't get there biblically. And listen, the Sabbath was really important, and we're going to talk about that as we get into the, into the book of Revelation, that day of rest. It's an important day, but the Lord's day is not the Sabbath, and the Lord's day is not Sunday. And, and let me just tell you, Sunday's an important day in the Bible. 
As a matter of fact, when you, when you read the book of Acts and you read 1 Corinthians 16, man, the, the disciples are meeting together on the first day of the week. And the reason why is because it's the day in the Bible that's recognized as the, as the day set aside for celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And so we have church on Sunday. And let me just tell you, yeah, yeah, for sure, Sunday is the Lord's day. But every day is the Lord's day, right? I mean, come on. Uh, we celebrate the resurrection, we gather together, we assemble, we sing about Christ. We do that on Sunday because the, the, the apostles did that, the early church did that. But this day of the Lord is not Sunday. What is John talking about? He was in, in the spirit on the Lord's day. Well, the Lord's day, get this in your notes, it's the day of the Lord. You, Jay, you're saying the Lord's day is the day of the Lord? That's right. If you can string that together, you too can be a pastor, all right? <laughs> I took a whole lot of PhD to figure that out. You're saying the Lord's day is the day of the Lord. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. How'd you get there? It's in the words. All right, that's good. All right, so anyways, so what does that mean? What, is, what does the day of the Lord really mean? Well, in your notes, it, it always points to the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord is always connected biblically with the second coming of Christ. We saw that in verse 7 a couple of weeks ago. Verse 7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. And so everything in the Bible is pointing to the second coming of Christ. Let me give you just a few references and then we'll be done. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1 to 3. Again, Paul writing to the Thessalonians. He says, The times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly, listen, that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. You say, well, is that the rapture? Well, keep reading. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And so whatever this day of the Lord is, it's connected ultimately with destruction. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 12 it says, the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and everyone that's lifted up, and they shall be brought where? They shall be brought low. So it's kind of a day of reckoning. Isaiah 13, verse 6, how ye for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 13, verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Here's the point. The day of the Lord, and, and we'll get into it more next week, but the day of the Lord can include the rapture all the way through the millennium. And, and we'll, we'll lay that out in detail next week. But you need to understand that where John is physically is on the Isle of Patmos. But where John is spiritually is on the day of the Lord. And that's important for us to understand as it relates to the book of Revelation because, here's the key in your notes, John's location is key to understanding the book of Revelation. In other words, if you don't get where he is when he's writing, you'll never, you'll never get the book right. You have to understand it. And God told John in Revelation 1 and verse 19, I want you to write the book of Revelation in three sections. I want you to write the things that you have seen, past tense. I want you to write the things which are, 
present tense. I want you to write the things which shall be hereafter, future tense, and what makes this so important is you have to understand where John is on the Lord's day. Because wherever the Lord's day is, what is behind that is going to be historically the past. What, whatever the Lord's day is presently is going to be what he's writing about presently. And whatever the future holds is what he's going to be writing about the things that he'll, shall be hereafter. And I know you're hungry this morning, but don't, don't miss this last point. From John's standpoint of the Lord's day, this divides the book of Revelation into three parts. And again, I know I'm closing on kind of a big statement here, but we're going to continue this study because we're taking weeks to introduce this. Revelations 1 to, chapters 1 to 3, when John is on the Lord's day and he writes the things that he has seen in the past, that's Revelations chapter 1, 2, and 3, it's the church age. When John is on the Lord's day and he writes the things which are, that means he's writing about the things that he's presently seeing. And that would include the tribu tribulation all the way to the second coming of Christ. And when he writes the things which are to come, it would include the millennium, but for sure the new heaven and the new earth, Revelation 20 through 22. And so right there you have an outline of the book of Revelation. But let me just say one more thing and then I'm done. Listen, John is having kind of an out-of-body experience. And he's having an out-of-time experience because God allowed him to go to a future point in time called the Lord's Day. And from that perspective, John sees past, present, and future and writes accordingly. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, man, that's really weird. How could John physically be on the Isle of Patmos and spiritually be somewhere else? That's weird. Well, listen, you shouldn't be shocked because this morning your physical address, at least if you're in the room, is at 7905 Logan Drive. I mean, mentally you may not be here, but I know physically I can, I can see you here. But can I also tell you that spiritually you're actually somewhere else? Can, can, you, can you look in, in the Bible for just a second at Ephesians chapter 2? and I'll, I'll throw it on the screen. But let me just remind you that because you are in Christ, you are already in the Spirit. And Ephesians chapter 2 says that, listen, when we were dead in our sins, Christ hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. He's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Can I just tell you that you're here, but you're there. And it's the exact same thing. Physically, you're here. Spiritually, you're there. And what a great God we serve. I mean, listen, what a powerful God we serve. We, God can do that. Your, your present spiritual address is in the third heaven in the person of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father. That ought to give you some better perspective on your problems. That ought to help us look at our problems instead of this horizontal view that many times we look at them. Uh, we, we ought to have a heavenly perspective because you're already there in Christ Jesus. You're already there. You're already there. So listen, as we close, I, I know we're out of time and I know you've got to get to lunch, but can we make application real quick? That's a lot of stuff we talked about. But if we, do, if we don't make application, it's kind of a mute point. So let me ask you this. Let's go back to John for just a second. Who are your companions in tribulation? Who are your companions in the kingdom? Who are your companions in the patience of Jesus Christ? 
Who are the people that are, that are part of the family of God that you're walking life together with? And if you would say, well, I come to church, man, but I don't have those people in my life. Can I encourage you to get those people in your life? Let me ask you this question. Whose companion are you? See, I could easily just say, hey, you need people in your life. But I also need you to be in other people's lives. In other words, you need to be a companion of other people in tribulation. You need to be a companion in the kingdom work that we're trying to see accomplished at Community Fellowship Baptist Church. You need to be a companion to those that are enduring the patience of Jesus Christ as they're waiting for God to give them the next step and their faith is being perfected. Are you there for others in tribulation? Are you engaged in kingdom work? And are you there sharing in the patience and the lives of other believers in Christ and encouraging them not to give up on the Lord? Guys, listen, we need each other. We need each other. And if you don't have a home church, if you're here today and, and maybe you're newer to our church or or maybe you're just visiting, let me just remind you that you need, you need the body of Christ. You need it. God wants to use you in it, and God wants you to be blessed by it, and we have to do this thing together. And so I hope that's an encouragement to you this morning. Let's pray, and then we're going to receive our offering, and then we're going to dismiss. And I appreciate your time this morning.